Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined by one of the friends of the show here. Uh, actually, we recorded at ASEP 19 way back in Denver, back uh, in the old world, uh, pre-COVID. And, uh, but it wasn't actually released until uh, August, uh, August 10th of this year because of COVID. And so we wanted to bring that and kind of expand from there. So we have uh, Dr. Arun Nagdev, and um, he's our one of our many um, specialists and experts in the use of point-of-care ultrasound. And where I like uh, Dr. Nagdev is the fact that we're talking about more of uh, not just where we are with healthcare, with the integration of uh, point-of-care ultrasound and procedures within the emergency department, but the potential of actually now the emergency department being a leader within our hospitals and systems, um, especially with where we are with pain management, the need for opioid stewardship, and for decreasing the risk of addiction and overdose, not to mention the complications. Um, we were actually talking before the recording uh, started, and um, and uh, one thing I didn't mention was that I work at a hospital that is a predominantly elderly population, a very old patient population. And uh, so blocks for us are incredibly important because of the elderly population, their risks associated with opioid medication. So Dr. Nagdev, thank you for joining us once again here on the front line. Thank you, Ryan. I'm really happy to be back. Uh, looking forward to another fun conversation. And one thing I do notice there um, with, um, with San Francisco in the background is there is not 20 inches of snow on the ground like our last conversation. <laughs> yeah, the weather's a little bit more, uh, a little bit better for me here. <laughs> Tons of snow in Colorado is tough. And we're probably not that too far off in terms of our weather. It's a beautiful 71 degree day here in uh, central Kentucky in Nicholasville, Kentucky, and uh, it's gorgeous outside. Beautiful, wonderful time of year, and it's a great time to talk about some of the things that we can do to improve our practice and the practice uh, of our hospitals. And so let's uh, let's dive right into it. Give us a little um, talk to us about how we're not just adopting POCUS in the in the emergency department now. We are now the leaders of point of care ultrasound in our systems and settings. Yeah, this is something that is. Uh it's amazing. I, I remember 15 years ago being the outlier, being the one arguing at with my department to get POCUS at an East Coast uh, institution. And now we're the leaders nationally. We're the ones pushing for other fields to adopt the same level of high, high level of care that we have kind of founded and brought to patients. Uh, our residents today are diagnosing patients quicker. They're more accurate. They're offering therapeutic interventions that we couldn't have done. I mean, I have interns doing pericardiocentesis um, on the cardiology rotation. We have our residents doing echoes for medicine on their IM rotation. I have a, a resident helping our uh, neurologist, neurologist do difficult LPs in their clinic. This is really amazing how it has changed from us arguing the point that we need point of care to improve patient-centered outcomes to other departments coming to us as leaders and people that really can help them. It is fascinating. And I think this is where emergency medicine is. We have suddenly become, and slowly, I think with a lot of work from our colleagues, the part of the hospital that brings out optimal care. And I think this is an amazing time for all of us. When we were um, looking into the opioid epidemic, uh, emergency medicine uh, said, you know, a lot of this problem didn't start here, but 
we're going to be the landing site for a lot of it. And we can also take the bull by the horns in terms of where we go from here. And especially with evidence-based pain management techniques. And a lot of times, you know, with opioids, it's basically just turning off the light in the closet to make the skeletons and ghosts go away. Um, whereas, you know, the real goal of pain management is addressing the source or cause of that pain. And ultrasound is a fantastic way to do that. In fact, just before and, and completely unrelated to our conversation, you know, I'm talking to um, our EMS, uh, the EMS uh, uh, agency that I'm the medical director for here about having ultrasound within all the ambulances, which is, you know, very common around the country. But looking at that, the advances and getting all the training and, and the amount of things they can provide, you know, we're going to start carrying ultrasound with us when we're on track with our NASCAR safety team as well. Um, and the devices have gone just simply in my career time, which I think ours is, our careers are probably similar length um, so far in terms of attending hood. And, you know, we've gone going from that giant cart that was the hand-me-down because a lot of the lines were bad, the screens were bad from OBGYN to now devices that are quickly uh, advancing faster than anybody can think now to the handheld personal devices that we have uh, available and a lot of physicians have, have purchased. But we are also, even in my department, went from me getting a uh, the T7 um, and performing and showing how to do some uh, IV blo- IV placements and simple blocks and evaluations, you know, the simple evaluations of DVTs and uh, fasts and gallbladders and those types of things, to now we're asking for our second machine because the nurses have gotten so into it for their work and we have more doctors. Almost all, most of our doctors now are proficient in ultrasound that, uh, that has really taken off and becoming uh, one of our primary tools. Um, and so naturally that evolution, that next step, and you talked about it with, with leaders in that, in, within this setting, how do we take that next step in our departments um, as we learn and get more uh, graduating residents, more attendings, more secondary uh, trained attendings um, that are proficient in ultrasound. Now, how do we make that transition? If you're at a community hospital or hospital where this is relatively new thinking, how do we make that transition implement these programs inside these uh, these facilities? Yeah, I think this is uh, happening quickly. And it, what's interesting for us, obviously, I work at an academic center. So I know it's I also work at a small community hospital. Um, we essentially trained our IM folks in ultrasound. And today, when if I'm working a shift this afternoon and I have a patient with congestive heart failure, the admitting physician, the admitting resident and attending commonly asked to see my ultrasound for CHF. That is their go-to when it comes to their evaluation of decompensated CHF. They're commonly asking us for visualization that now they see as part of their evaluation. Internal medicine is internal medicine ultrasound has taken off dramatically in the last four or five years. So I think that this is going to start coming in at all angles. You're going to have your cardiologist asking you what the heart looks like when you admit your CHF patient or your chest pain patient. And so I think this is something that is our residents are being trained from day one. This is a part and parcel of their scholarship, their learning, their education. Um, and I think if you're working by yourself, this is a great time to slowly pick up one thing at a time. And I think when I work by myself, I usually teach our other physicians like one thing, let's look at the heart, let's look for an effusion, let's look for a big, good squeeze or not. And starting there, they just start getting better and better with pattern recognition, and they slowly move on to more and more. And I think this is the 
future of where medicine's going. With these programs, um, you know, getting them initiated, uh, one of the biggest things is is always getting the hospital involved and, you know, you get the machine, you get everything, but then where the image is going, ways to do reports, things like that. My hospital still hasn't uh, gotten us onto their, you know, onto the super, super secret safe that is the, uh, that is the PAC system. Um, and, you know, whatever they... We, we save and store the images and bill on our own. But um, at the same point, you know, having that when you're talking about, you know, the internal medicine and cardiology, being able to see those things, you know, having them in the same area where a lot of all the images are to where it can be part of that recurring situation and, and, and that care um, is going to be huge. How do we make that when you're working through, because you mentioned even before we started that you're now starting to do other areas of the hospital, you're, you're starting to be kind of a consultant service in yourself uh, for some of these procedures. And we'll talk about some of the cool blocks here in, in a bit. But how do we get those programs started, making sure that, you know, that we are, you know, one, covered, but then two, um, making those, building those relationships of, being a service that that can provide uh, these types of treatments and, and therapies and evaluations. So yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and if you look at the like ASEP interest group and in ultrasound, there's a large conversation that's happening about point of care leaders hospital based. And there's a lot of centers that are doing this. They're they're trying to identify the person that can bring all their departments together. I'm doing this for our hospital. And the idea is, so I'll tell you our history. So when we started having all these ultrasounds on the systems, how do we share them? How do we QA them? How do we upload them? It took me as the leader to push through with IT and figure out a way to get this done. So all of our data on these systems gets dumped directly to our PAC server that we have visualization of. Our radiologists don't want to look at these. So we review these on a weekly basis. And then we gave access to that same PAC server to our medicine colleagues. So they have a nice ability to look. They also started doing this. Now my job has been to do that for internal medicine, for OB, because we want them all to be able to upload all their data so we all can look in a non-siloed manner. In the same way, I'll tell you a study we did a few years back, which changed the way OB practice. So when patients came in first trimester pregnancies, we started dating them and it sounds silly, but we started doing all the dates on these first trimester pregnancies because at a large safety net hospital, a lot of our patients come in for the first vaginal bleeding, I'm pregnant, and then they come back at 36 weeks in active labor. And OB wanted active, real dating rather than guesstimates at third trimester. And this changed their practice. And now they're on board. Cardiology wants to see what we see. Medicine wants to see our patients. And this makes a huge difference. It takes a couple people or one person to be the champion. And that has to happen at each hospital. And at hospital centers, again, this POCUS person, which is going to come from EM almost always, is going to lead this charge. Then it's really important to have that emergency, that that person, the, the physician um, champion to, to help uh, get all that stuff uh, done and, and through. Um, and just as simple as understanding that, and I th- one of the important things is, if you're the proper emergency department, uh, emergency physician, emergency uh, pr- emergency uh, specialist of some sort, 
you, you, you're going to do interventions. And so the picture that they may see the next day, especially cardiology, or what they may see may be different. And so being able to see that arrival and the reason for the diagnosis, that instantaneous information of here's what the heart looked like, here's what the lungs looked like, here's what whatever parts you're looking at looked like on arrival that caused the diagnosis that led to the admission to the hospital uh, or whatever it may be, uh, it can be can be huge because so much so often we get that consultation the next day and they're like, well, what are you talking about? This person looks fine. This person is great. And like, yeah, but that was that we did some work and uh, that person is a little bit different now. So being able to see those types of things. So let's talk about some of these. Um, get some learning on with regard to some of these cool blocks because originally you start simple like dvts and ivs and everything and it gets more and more complicated but it seems like now talking with the 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 pocus gurus we're actually coming back around to things that seemed like they would have been complicated but now we're making them much easier we're finding easier ways and safer ways to do them and again you know with point of care ultrasound these procedures many times being blocks as well you know we're decreasing that uh decreasing the dependence on Uh, the opioid-based pain medicines, decreasing the complications, side effects, potential dependence, addiction, um, and actually being more effective at managing that discomfort, breaking that cycle to where it's easier to manage uh, and easier to take care of, you know, where people may have a a painful condition, give them a little respite from it, and then when we come back, we can manage uh, with with much lesser in terms of uh, medications, decreasing that risk of of having an issue uh, or prolonging that recovery. So let's talk about uh, some of those. One thing you wanted to talk about, and it, it's a it sounds like a potentially big topic in terms of options, but are the planar blocks. Um, we talked a little bit um, about uh, some of the treatment of rib related issues with our in our last episode, but uh, but you've really kind of really expanded and, and, and looked at these easier ways to perform these uh, planar blocks. Yeah, I mean, I think these make a huge difference. I, and I'm going to say this, and I know it's going to sound odd, but almost all blocks, all blocks that I do are planar blocks. Uh, getting fluid in a fascial plane is the key to any block. Uh, nerves, artery, and vein run between two muscles, and they kind of get sandwiched between two muscles. And it's the fascial planes that run in there. We know this from Patients that get necrotizing fasciitis, as it spreads, it causes this anesthesia. And it's because it's essentially irritating that muscle, uh, irritating that nerve. So whenever I'm looking for blocks, I look for the fascia plane, open the fascia plane, and the fluid tracks around the nerve and gives that block. And for that reason, we call these planar blocks because we're not really targeting a specific nerve, but really a nerve plexus, essentially. And uh, the first one I do want to talk about is the serratus anterior plane block. Um, this is a great block. This is one of those blocks that uh, I remember teaching this block years ago to a group out in Germany. And I got all this feedback from them saying, I can't believe this works so well. I'd get emails being like, I can't believe this is changing our practice. Other hospital systems have taken this and also brought it to the forefront. And I can tell you today, if a patient comes in with multiple rib fractures in our trauma bay, uh, the surgeon looks over at me and goes, can you give this guy a serratus block because I know he's gonna be in a lot of pain. And before it was opioids, maybe ketamine, NSAIDs, and they'd be wincing in pain with all the downstream problems. And today we block these people up front, break that cycle, break that wind up phenomenon, we called it. Like you're in so much pain that you're scared to take a deep breath, giving you the chance to relax, 
blocking that pain pathway and then starting you on opioids and NSAIDs and ketamine, whatever you need to really get you through that interim is really has changed the practice in our hospital and now become a standard algorithmic pathway in our department. Our goal is going to be that uh, uh, with this podcast, of course, audio podcast, but we'll uh, provide some links within the description uh, of, of links to, to demonstrate some of these blocks and, and how they're done uh, to get things started. Of course, watching the videos, seeing how it's done, but then getting some localized experience. And that's what's great now is we're seeing a lot of ultrasound-based uh, fellows and uh, specialists that, that are around that you can use as as your source. And what I've found is that uh, ultrasound folks love to share their information, data, and, and teach uh, almost universally um, you know, their skills. And so it, it's one of those things that, you know, it takes a little bit of onboarding, but, um, once you get it and once you know how to do it, it all, it all becomes pretty easy. So walk us through, uh, the serratus anterior plane block. So just, just to cut in for a second. So, uh, the ASAP now there's, uh, excuse me, AC, yeah, ASAP now has a running column that I write for. So there, this is on that and anybody can Google it, or we'll put a link in the, uh, I guess the show notes, and it can go directly to, to that spot. So essentially, we all know where our serratus muscles are. They're kind of, if you lift your arm up, it's your latissimus dorsi in the back and then your pec muscle in the front. Kind of that, they call it the boxer's muscle. You get those rips right there. That's the serratus muscle. It's serrated because it's, it's kind of finger-like and it's located right above your ribs. And so it's nice for, la- for lateral and anterior rib fractures. The goal is to put the ultrasound probe, it's usually a linear probe, across in this direction, facing kind of the nipple at the level of the mid-axillary line. And the goal is to come with the needle in plane, so you're visualizing the needle tip, and drop anesthetic just above the serratus muscle. Obviously, it's hard to uh, explain this on a audio podcast, but this is a fairly simple block. This is a block that I can get an intern, my, my, my uh, mid-level providers or APPs, med students to do. Um, and it's a pretty easy block. Essentially, again, you're just dropping anesthetic on top of the serratus muscle, which is really easily visualized by putting the probe right kind of in your axilla a little lower, kind of where you put a chest tube, but just right in that spot. And the beauty of it is once you see a needle going in and you, you drop in, I usually drop in some normal saline to open the space up. And then I put in some anesthetic. As the person breathes, the fluid will spread up and down. This is by MRI studies. They injected kind of contrast, iodinated contrast, and they look at some, as somebody breathes and this fluid tracks in a cephalad and caudad direction. So if the person has a, a fracture of the seventh rib, you don't need to put it right over the seventh rib. It's, if you can, it's fine, but really it's anywhere in that plane as they breathe, it spreads. So it's not like a dental block where you inject and two minutes later, you're pain free. It's usually you inject, you, as an ER physician, it's hard to do. You have to leave. And 30 minutes later, the patient will be actually breathing better. They'll be taking better breaths. They'll be more comfortable. And the idea is to start the pain medication at that point, give them a nice long block that lasts six to 12 to 18 hours with bupivacaine or rapivacaine, whatever your anesthetic of choice is. And then what we try to do is get our anesthesia colleagues to help them in the morning. Or a lot of times one block works. It really does. It makes them comfortable enough for our trauma services, very happy with it. And this has now become the standard practice for all rib fractures in our department. 
everyone. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the transition to anesthesia because that's actually what we're doing for the femoral nerve block with our hip fractures. As I mentioned, elderly population, a lot of rib, a lot of hip fractures. And so we started doing those when anesthesia wasn't available after hours, weekends, holidays, those types of things. Then anesthesia would come in either pre-op or, or uh, during the surgery itself and drop, uh, drop the catheter in there for that recovery process. But what we're talking about for most rib fractures, uh, especially in the community setting, is just giving them a little bit of a respite, getting them through that initial pain cycle and then allowing and and then covering that discomfort, you know, once they're home, once they're a little bit, you know, not going to be jostling or moving around as much. And then we can manage it uh, from there. But this sounds like, you know, with the serratus anterior plane block, it sounds like it's a more superficial block, not like the one that may, you know, impact a NFL quarterback that may be in an area near where you live uh, with the potential of dropping a lung. Um, but that is, um, is that too soon? It's uh, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate. I, right when that happened, it was all over Twitter. People were like, "Why did they not do an ultrasound guided serratus anterior plane block?" It was all over Twitter. It was kind of fascinating to see so many physicians so annoyed by antiquated practices. I hate saying that. Well, and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about why this is a beneficial versus some of the other approaches or some of the the deeper um, lung biopsy approaches. <laughs> so. If you look at the block that I think that the, the patient in question had, they actually go between the ribs and go to kind of right where the lung tissue is. And that's a very delicate area. And doing that blind and using your lung as a backstop is really tough. It's a tough block. It's close to vasculature. It's close to, the, to your, your, hopefully your sliding lung. And you can get a pneumothorax. I mean, this has happened... I'm sure this is not an uncommon event. And it's funny because a press release was, this is not an uncommon event. Yes, it's not an uncommon event. The same way that when you do a blind internal jugular, not an uncommon event is it to, it to hit the carotid artery. But we have facilities to do better. Those handheld probes worked great. You could, you, they could have done that easily on this athlete and reduced the downstream effects of pneumothorax. I mean, that is uh, unfortunate. And uh, that is something that we teach our residents, right? Best options, if it was your family, what would you do? And I think that we would do that. Yeah, so the, the serratus anterior stays pretty relatively superficial uh, using the underlying musculature and ribs as, as the backstop at that point to give you some of that room. And that is the nice thing about uh, point-of-care ultrasound is, is you can really get to see that. And that. I think that's one of the techniques that everybody really needs to um, learn. Uh, one of the earliest things you learn is being able to track a needle. Uh, track. I mean, of course, there's needles that are designed for it too that, that are actually a little bit better at seeing. But, you know, I did a, I did a, a, a um, uh, an arthrocentesis. Of course, it was one of those arthrocentesis, it's it, arthrocentesis um, that you could actually hit with a lawn dart from 100 paces on a knee. But the ultrasound, I was able to watch it and know exactly when I was going to start getting fluid and know exactly where I was going to be. And so you're not poking around. And so that's being able to track that needle, you know, whether an IV placement, central line placement, whatever it may be, it, or the blocks in that matter, being able to see where that tip is to kind of know exactly where you are. And as you mentioned, um, with the serratus anterior block, uh, instilling a little bit of saline, which is what we use initially with our femoral nerve blocks as well to uh, dissect that, that plane, but also to confirm exactly where you are. Um, so you can kind of see it, but also, you know, the beauty 
Now with the nerve bundles, with the femoral nerve, you inject a little bit of saline and it kind of almost floats the nerve and you can kind of just see it there. Then it's like fish in a barrel at that point. Uh, I don't know why people shoot fish in a barrel, but apparently that was very common at some point in our history. But the with, with this aspect of the uh, serratus, uh, serratus anterior block with the plane, you know, with that spreading out and using the physiology in that, uh, in that layer cake kind of design of our bodies to uh, equally spread it out and to give relief, you know, without the potential, uh, well, minimal in terms of uh, risks of complications or, in this case, a lung puncture. What are some of these other applications, easier things that uh, we're now making safer uh, and, and using for blocks that you like to do in your facility? So I'll, I'll tell you some stuff, and I know this is going to be out there, and people are going to be like, this is crazy. I can't believe you guys are doing this. But this has changed the practice, and our colleagues and other services love it. It's such a non-solid approach. I'll start off with this, another one that's on one of the ASEP articles. We, for acute appendicitis, we've been doing these things called tap blocks, which are transverse abdominus plane blocks. It sounds crazy, but we do these ultrasound-guided you inject the same thing. It's in the abdomen. It sounds really difficult, but it's very simple. And our patients have sev- like literally relief from 10 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 abdominal pain down to 3 out of 10. Our surgeons love it. They're, they, uh, one of our surgeons, literally every appy, she'll be like, Arun, go, can you get, can you get somebody to do this block? Because I don't want this guy on a bunch of opioids. It's great. We have doing this uh, a new a newer block that's been out probably a few years is called the uh, it's called the erector spinae plane block which sounds really scary because people are like what the heck is an erector spinae muscle and i get it i get it i know i'm saying big words and making it confusing these are all blocks that i think junior residents with a little bit of training get comfortable at and our junior residents get really comfortable with this stuff and they literally ask to do it every time so for resistant kidney stone pain, the guy that's you've given opioids to, you've given ketamine, screaming in pain, we do an erector spinae, which is a block that's based in the back that essentially gives good anesthesia to the entire abdomen. We've used it for pancreatitis. I mean, it's I can get into this and the detail of this, but it's amazing how useful these blocks are. And it's completely revolutionized the way that we practice emergency care Some of it will spread, some of it won't, but I think this is the way that we should be thinking about pain management as an active process, because we're the ones that offer the best pain management for our acutely injured patients, not some other service. And it sounds like, you know, this targeted pain management where you actually, again, target the source and the reason. Now, it sounds like, uh, of course, with what you're talking about with some of the abdominal pains, kidney stone pains, appendicitis, you know, the old saying that uh, surgeons didn't want you to give any pain medicines for abdominal pain secondary to hiding the diagnosis. But it sounds like one of those things where if you've got a diagnosis, you have a, a, a firm causation where we're not saying, hey, we need to wait another eight hours or 12 hours and kind of see how this develops to see if it's going to need a surgical intervention. You know, of course, with appendicitis, well, uh, then again, I say surgical intervention, but a lot of push towards non-surgical interventions, just more of an antimicrobial approach to appendicitis. You know, this is one of those things, if you've got a diagnosis saying we've got a diagnosis, just like when we have a hip fracture, shoulder, shoulder fracture, dislocation, whatever it may be, we have a known entity and attacking the source of that entity um, to give that and, and breaking that relief. When we, when you do those things, you know, say the kidney stones, uh, because I think that's a huge one for everybody. And we've moved with Alto, we've moved away from the opioid based managements uh, of kidney stones for the most part. 
you know, a lot of docs are still doing pretty decent op- uh, opioid dosing, but for a lot of us, it is, you know, still going to the NSAID base, Tylenol base, some of the plus minus lidocaine, depending on where you are with the, with the research there. Um, how do you see when you hit them, the, these folks and you break it, kind of turn it off for that little bit when it comes back, when that, when it wears off, say with kidney stone pain, how, what, what are those levels in management? Is it more, is it easier at that point to manage? With all my blocks, I always say that once the block sets in, be a femoral, be a distal radius, whatever, you got to start the oral or IV pain medication with that block. Because the goal is not to just do the block and have the patient not take any meds for the next six hours and have the pain come back. So for the kidney stone pains, we're using it, and I've done probably about six or seven of these, in patients who are refractory. I mean, they get the rounds of opioids or NSAIDs and ketamine, and they're still wincing in pain. We do these blocks and then start them directly on oral medications right after that. And we haven't had any bounce backs yet. So I, I can't tell you from prospective large study-based data yet. Um, we're, we're finishing up this case series and we're going to start doing this prospectively. But it really has been starting them up front, getting that 10 out of 10 cycle out of their head because everybody, everybody who's ever had pain before, it's the fear of the pain coming back that really gets your mind wound up. And you've seen these patients in your ER, right? They're so scared of that recrudescence of pain that they're freaked out. And reducing that, starting on opioid med- or oral medications, excuse me, really, I think, reduces that wind-up phenomenon. I keep on saying that, but I think it really is a true thing. So as, a, as physicians out there, you know, learning the, the evaluation based of the ultrasound. So POCUS in its earliest manifestation was all about the evaluation, the FAST exam, EFAST, the, the gallbladders, the DVTs, the renal calculi, or ureterolithiasis, uh, those types of things. And now much more into the procedural based, whether it's initially the very simple aspect of dropping uh, of IV access, but now more to the potential of blocks and, and everything else that, that we have access to now. And so I think it's one of those things that, you know, the more you wait on getting uh, comfortable and getting proficient at ultrasound, the farther behind you're getting. And unfortunately for you, uh, not not you potentially, Arun, uh, but I mean, as, as physicians out there, if, if you've been resistant to, um, to these types of things, it is now getting to the point that it's becoming, um, and you hate to use the word, but the standard of care. Um, at least the expectation uh, of being able to do these things, and 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 um, you know, as as it becomes more widespread and available, that will be the expectation that the services will be provided, that it will be done. But for me, as an emergency physician in Central Kentucky, you know, the time saving you mentioned, um, you mentioned prior about the uh, about the pregnancy, early pregnancy. Well, you know, I can confirm an intrauterine pregnancy, make sure there's nothing obvious in the wings. And um, and have the person ready to go in ten or fifteen minutes from the time they arrive. If I can confirm that, and everything else looks good. Um, you know, a patient with, um, you know, with a, with the lower extremity, instead of waiting for echo or calling them in or whatever it may be, being able to run and get a DVT. In fact, uh, we recently did one while I was uh, on the road traveling. Um, you know, somebody had a had a a, a a thrombus that they'd been following and they started getting worse symptoms. And so we poked into a, 
uh, office and uh, and got it done and took a look and said, yep, sure enough, you've had some propagation. We need to change your treatment at this point and, and go with an anticoagulant instead of just the simple aspirin approach. And so, you know, it's, it's a huge, it's a time changer. It's a, it's a, it's a skill that we can use not only to assist in our diagnostics and therapeutics, but, you know, also as a potential for revenue. Um, and that's not only better for us for as physicians and practitioners, but also better for the patients because we can use lesser costly and lower risk techniques. Uh, so, you know, maybe give a kind of overall summary as we wrap up, you know, as where we're going, because every time we talk, every time I have discussions and we try to do, uh, focus based podcast a couple of few times a year just because of the, how fast it's advancing the cool skills that docs and, and PAs and NPs can learn and nurses can can assist and, and so I think it's one of those things there's always fresh information and we've yet to retract you know retread anything other than just mentioning some of that other stuff I mean every time we've talked we've talked about a different or new type of block uh, t- just kind of bring it home with with your experience in life and in the world of Pocus and, and where it's going with emergency medicine and now in our hospitals and systems with us at the lead. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of talk about in two big aspects. One is the diagnostic aspect. And I tell this to our residents so, so often, like walking into a room with a patient that has epigastric rapid quadrant pain, you've already start the process of, do I need to image? Do I need a gallbladder study? Do I need a CT? Do I need to send them home? That irritation when I was a resident where they went down to ultrasound and came back with no gallstones. And then they went to CT and came back. I mean, just, we have moved beyond that. And being a good clinician means getting data at the bedside. And that data has to be more objective today than just kind of squeezing their belly. Um, the patient with dyspnea, I mean, in a crisis that we, we are in today in the pandemic, how many of our patients have we had that come in with acute dyspnea that we assume is COVID or we assume is asthma or assume is heart failure and we've changed our diagnostic pathway just by a simple bedside echo. So I think the diagnostic realm is still growing and really becoming the center of our initial evaluation and becoming so important to us. And then move that over to the procedural aspect. I remember being a resident and doing a knee orthocentesis and missing and bumping into the patella and bumping into something else, the patient jumps. It's so uncomfortable for that patient. And today you just talked about that story of having my patient who I'm gonna do a neonthocentesis on. I, I'm like, that's your fusion. I show it to them. And then they watch the needle come in. I'm like, I'm aspirating. It is a game changer. It is a confidence builder. Your ER physician now is an expert at doing that procedure. There's no bump, bump, aspirate. Ankle aspirations wrist aspirations. These are all now under our auspices and also pain management, which is, I think is really what patients care about, right? Patients remember horrible pain. Our job is to reduce it. And by using techniques and learning these techniques, something as simple as a femoral nerve block can change the pathway for a patient in a hospital. They spend time with their family and talk to them rather than being completely snowed by a bunch of opioids. They have been shown to do better post-op once it get blocked in the ED, this is where we are in emergency medicine and we're the leaders of it. And we're going to spread this all through the hospital system. The, the interesting kind of summary to the, uh, to the knee uh, arthrocentesis um, is we ended up draining off 65 cc's from this guy's uh, knee 
And um, the orthopedist came down and said, well, we may not have to do anything, but just observe them now because you pulled everything off that was in there. So, you know, it may have solved the, the, the entire problem. So a diagnostic and ther- therapeutic procedure um, all under the uh, images of uh, images of, uh, of the ultrasound. So uh, Dr. Arun Nagdev, uh, appreciate it. Um, thank you very much. I actually want to come once COVID is done. Um, I want to come hang out there uh, with you at Highlands and 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 learn some of these uh, techniques kind of move my game up as well uh, my big next one is the lungs uh, getting getting more of the the diagnostics uh, uh, evaluation of lung-based tissue stuff because that wasn't around when I was a resident and uh, it's one of those things you have to you, you got to go in I know it's pretty easy to do I just need to be able to see it once or twice and so uh, I'll, I'll work on a trip out there how can folks get in touch with you if they have more questions uh, or comments of course checking them out in the ASAP now, and we'll post uh, some of the the relevant ones from this particular episode within our description on whatever platform you like to use within the show notes. Uh, but also checking that out, I've got an ASAP now sitting downstairs that came in yesterday. So, um, how can folks get in touch with you? So uh, I think my Twitter handle is at Nagdev Arun. It's N A G D E V. My first name A R U N. That's an easy way to get a hold of me. I try to post uh, cases, primarily blocks and procedural cases pretty often so people just get that pattern recognition because I think most of this is pattern recognition. You gotta see a lot of x-rays before you know what you're looking at. Uh, A lot of EKGs before you see the ST elevations. Um, So I think that same pattern recognition is really important. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Fantastic, yes. And as for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail or at everydaymed on Twitter. Um, and I appreciate it. We'll keep uh, posting and, and, and bring in uh, the newest and greatest and POCUS. I am definitely not the expert, but I've been uh, blessed by being able to find some of the best around the country and around the world to chat with us. Um, and uh, I really appreciate it in advancing medicine. And as they thought, uh, as, as they thought uh, that this was going to become the stethoscope of the new stethoscope of the 21st century, I think it's uh, actually much, much uh, more than that. It's not only the Uh, It's the treatment, the evaluation, the imaging, and the skill of the 21st century. Yeah, there's also another resource I like to throw out there. It's a a free website that we produce that allows people to look at all the blocks that we're talking about, all the procedures, completely free, no ads. It's highlandultrasound.com. You go on there, they have all the blocks, all the procedures, all our musings. They're cases that you can look at, and it's meant for people to use and learn that we get about eight to 10,000, I think like maybe 12,000 hits a month, which is a reasonable amount for a small little independent free website. So people can learn and please pass it along. And we'll throw that, um, that link as well uh, into the description. So uh, what's the website again? It's Highland, H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D, ultrasound.com. All right, and we'll do that. And uh, everybody up your game. This is, uh, this is the future is now, and uh, it's a great opportunity for people of my generation um, to, to start coming back around and learning these things and getting what the uh, residents are seeing uh, right now. The technology is very different. The skills are very different. But we're, as uh, in emergency medicine, are the ones positioned well to make this happen for our patients and for our facilities. And as for me, uh, I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you like. We've got them on all of them now. Um, I think uh, we're, we're up on iHeartRadio finally. So uh, check it out. Uh, save it. Download it on a regular basis, share it with your friends, family, neighbors, countrymen, and we'll catch you next time. I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.